Mecham Auctions, the world's largest collector car auction company, returns to Indy with Dana Mecham's 37th Original Spring Classic, May 10th through the 18th at the Indiana State Fairground. 3,000 muscle cars, Corvettes, exotics, and more. Broadcast on Motor Trend TV and streaming live on Max. From avid collectors to those new to the Mecham experience, we welcome everyone. Register to bid now at Mecham.com. Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. I'm Andrew Langer, coming in uh, live and hot on uh, WIBC. And for Tony Katz today, we got a great show coming up. I'm going to keep talking just in case uh, somebody can hear me out there. In any case, um, we got a great show today. And uh, we got uh, Bonner Cohen from the National Center for Public Policy Research joining us in just a few minutes. Eric Rourke from Numbers USA going to hit us all to what's going on with the president's visit to the border. Uh, uh, Ellie Gardy from the American Spectator going to join. Tim Lee from the Center for Individual Freedom as well going to join us. And Scott Shepard from the Free Enterprise Project. All of them going to join us today. Oh, Barry Hinckley, who's got some project called the Redeclaration of Independence as well. Oh, and a little-known figure you may be familiar with. Tony Katz going to join us uh, live from uh, Israel today on his trip. Yeah. Tony, as you know, is in Israel. I am here. I am in for him. As I said, I am Andrew Langer. You know, you can contact the show if you want. Uh, You can contact the show. uh, Well, you can contact me while I'm on the air. Facebook.com slash Andrew Langer Show. That's how you get a hold of me here. Uh, Then, of course, uh, you can also at me on Twitter, at Andrew underscore Langer on Twitter. So go and check us out there as well. Always glad uh, to be joining you here with the show. And listen, I should have teed this up earlier, but, uh, you know, dealing with some technical issues behind the scenes. Um, I'll play some of this later on. I am coming fresh off of CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference. Uh, I'm now with CPAC. If you didn't know it, um, about, uh, uh, let's say, eight months ago, seven months ago, I came on board with the folks at CPAC to... um, I came on board with the folks at CPAC to um, uh, head up their new Center for Regulatory Freedom. Well, Carl, if you're there, this is good. Carl, if you can just get ready in a second for cut number one, just let me know if you got it. I sent it over to you this morning. Uh, Just I'll tee it up in a minute. Um, uh, So, yeah, so CPAC happened over the weekend. Tony uh, could not be there. Um, we're going to make sure that Tony and others are there next year. Going to do a little bit more. There are a number of talk radio folks who wanted to be there but couldn't for a whole host of reasons. Next year, we're going to make that happen. So anyway, I'm now on board with CPAC as director of their Center for Regulatory Freedom. And um, um, what that means is this is an effort to sort of push back, not sort of, to push back against the administrative state. And I've done breakout sessions in the past this year was the first year that i actually was on the main stage as clear as i can think about it by the way this was my we figured it out this i believe was my 20th cpac which i i'm sort of wrapping my head around even worse it was not my 20th cpac in a row i mean i've been going to cpac how many times can i say cpac i've been going to cpac probably since 2000 um, so 24 years ago, in that time, I've missed a handful here and there. 
but I think we figured out that it's uh, my 20th CPAC, first time on the main stage. And I did a panel on regulation and on health care uh, and on technology issues uh, with Steve Moore, who, as we all know, uh, uh, one of President Trump's major economics advisors, uh, with uh, former congressman from Georgia, Doug Collins, and with Brendan Carr, who was an FCC commissioner. And we talked about a number of different things. We talked about, what did we talk about? We talked about issues having to do with um, uh, having to do with something called marching rights, which I'll get into more over the next couple of days. In fact, we may get Doug Collins to join us in the next couple of days to talk about that. A real dastardly situation happening with prescription drugs. Uh, we had Brendan Carr talking about uh, DEI and wokeism. And by the way, we got some great clips of, of Kamala Harris talking about DEI later on in the show, um, talking about uh, uh, things going on at the FCC. But we talked with Steve Moore about regulation and the economy. Here is uh, here is Steve Moore uh, uh, with a question from me. Cut number one. Regulation is a tax on the American economy. The increase in the inflation rate did not happen by accident. By the way, when Donald J. Trump left office in January of 2021, the inflation rate was 1.6%. Right. In 18 months, I don't know how he did this, in 18 months, Joe Biden took the inflation rate from 1.6 to 9.2%. How many, Do you think this is intentional? Are you trying to screw I, I, the yes. economy up? Because if they were trying to, they couldn't do a better job. It's. I was just commenting today to somebody about what I call Hanlon's razor. Not what I call Hanlon's razor. What Hanlon called Hanlon's razor, uh, which is this idea that uh, when you're trying to determine the culpability in a situation, never attribute to malice that which can just as easily be attributed to stupidity. So in the end, it really doesn't matter. Well, I guess it does matter if it was intentional or not that uh, that the economy is being toppled over. Um, but uh, but, uh, you know, it is a situation in which we we may not know <laughs> if it was by design or or just incompetence, probably a measure of both when it comes to the Biden administration. But the end result is still the same. Um, you know, and I spent a lot of time talking about uh, the regulatory state now costing the American economy about three trillion dollars annually. Donald Trump, when he was president, love him or hate him. Right. And, 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 and that's just it. You know, um, there are many things to like about President Trump. There are many things to not like about President Trump. The bottom line, though, is for the issues that matter to me, President Trump was good and bounds better. In fact, let me let me underscore something very early on in the show today, something you can take away uh, with your friends and family members who might be contemplating voting for somebody other than the Republican um, because they're angry at Donald Trump. The bottom line here is, and this is not the uh, the, the statement um, uh, voting for the lesser of two evils. It is very simple and straightforward. The question is, substance matters. I'm not going to say that Donald Trump is a substantive person, but he governed in a substantive manner. His administration accomplished a great many things of a substantive nature. And so when you're making these choices, if Donald Trump delivered uh, or Donald Trump's administration delivered on the vast majority of the substantive issues that were important to you, then vote for Donald Trump. 
because voting for Joe Biden is going to get you more of the same of what we have today. Now, what do I mean by that in terms of regulation? Again, to sort of tee it up early on for you. Donald Trump kept regulatory costs constant. Now, Steve Moore and I, you know, he, he is talking about the reducing the cost per family. I, I don't know what those numbers are. I'd, I'd have to go look. But when Donald Trump came into office, Barack Obama had essentially doubled the cost of the regulatory state in eight years. It went from uh, uh, $1.1 trillion when he took office to $2.2 trillion when he left office doubled the size and what that means is it's it's the 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 fingers of government getting into everybody's business all the the little things and the big things the obama administration did donald trump came in changed the posture of the regulatory state and kept now i would i would submit that he didn't cut regulatory costs and that's important i'm sorry he he didn't cut that he didn't reduce reduce that two and a quarter trillion dollar number and it's important because I believe that this regulatory glide path is an important thing, right? If Donald Trump wins election next year and he just keeps regulatory co- – later this year, and he just keeps regulatory costs constant, you know, if we don't grow the regulatory state between now and, seven, and, and, uh, now and 2030, our estimates, my estimates are that the regulatory state will cost the American economy $7 trillion if we, if we keep on the trajectory that we're on. Right now, it's $3 trillion. But, uh, Joe Biden and Team Biden has added about uh, three-quarters of a, of, a, of a trillion dollars, of a trillion with a T, dollars, to the regulatory state. If we keep on that trajectory, the regulatory state will cost us $7 trillion a year which is a vast number to contemplate. You know, essentially double the size of the federal budget right now, a little less than double, given how much we've increased spending. If we keep it constant, if we manage to keep it constant between now and 2030, we can save the American economy a trillion, uh, $4 trillion in regulatory costs overall. And that's that. And anyway, not that I want to go all down the road in terms of numbers and opportunity costs and things like that. Anyway, that was my panel over the weekend at CPAC. Very excited. It was a great time. I'm sorry, Tony missed out. Of course, he's he's doing great work over in uh, uh, over in the Middle East now. He will be joining us at one o'clock. Joining us when we come back will be Eric. Uh, sorry, Bonner Cohen from the National Center for Public Policy Research to talk about some of these economic issues. I'm Andrew Langer in for Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz today. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. We are back. I am Andrew Langer in for Tony Katz while Tony Katz is overseas in Israel, he's going to be joining us in a little while. But joining us right now, my old buddy. And listen, you talk about radio voices. This man has the voice for radio. His name is Bonner Cohen. He's a senior fellow with the National Center for Public Policy Research. Good, good afternoon, Bonner. How are you doing, my friend? 
Good afternoon, Andrew. Let's, I'm doing well, and I hope our listeners are too. The timber of that voice. Bonner, um, listen, I want to start here. You do great work on environmental issues. By the way, he's Dr. Bonner Cohen because he's got a, a Ph.D. Um, we're seeing that the uh, Biden administration may be pulling back on their EV sales mandate, right? How many vehicles need to be sold, uh, the percentage they're in. Is this a case that they're really pulling back, or is this a case in which the Biden administration laid out such an outrageous goal for trying to transform the transportation economy that any way that they pull back looks like they're uh, moderating their position? What are your thoughts here? I think they uh, are making a very slight bow to reality. Uh, They, as you correctly pointed out, set a goal uh, for the uh, sale of EVs to the American driving public that even they now realize they can't possibly reach. Yes. So what they're doing uh, is simply scaling back the rhetoric a little bit. But we have no indication whatsoever that the policies behind that rhetoric, namely uh, the uh, efforts by the Biden administration, Environmental Protection Agency to essentially regulate gasoline-powered vehicles out of existence. They won't ban them, but they will regulate them out of existence. And once they are no longer there in sufficient numbers to reach public demand, the public is going to have no choice but to go where the public at this point demonstrably doesn't want to go, and that is to purchase EVs. Why? Because A, they can't afford them. B, the infrastructure for EVs is simply not in place, and we have no reason to believe it's going to be in place anytime soon. And C, the repair cost of EVs are right. absolutely enormous. So this is not an attractive option for the vast majority of the American driving public. You know, it's funny, Bonner, because I'm reminded of what I used to joke about with regards to the non-incandescent light bulbs. Now, wait, listen, we all like, we're liking the LED bulbs more, but I remember when, you know, they, they made this move down the road towards the, the compact fluorescent bulb, which was a bulb that, that you know, it, it emitted bad light. It could damage the skin. You couldn't throw them out. They could make you blind with the lack of decent light. I used to quip that if the devil wanted to invent a, a light bulb, he couldn't, he couldn't have done much worse than, the, uh, than the, uh, the compact fluorescent bulb. Is this another case of essentially a mandate for a, a car that is essentially from the devil? I, I mean, and look, guys, listen, I'm not making a religious argument here, but what I'm saying is a, a car, as you said, that's expensive to drive, that has these inherent risks, in them is expensive to buy you can't drive it when it's cold or if you live somewhere where it's cold i i mean this is this is nothing short of a form of insanity or is it bonner a way to also get people out of their cars and into cities and onto mass transit uh, if, you, if you look at the long-term goal of the environmental movement it is partly uh, the first thing you said but very specifically the second thing because what they're going to do is regulate gasoline-powered vehicles out of existence and replace them with EVs which nobody wants or can't afford. So 
what are you going to do? You're going to ultimately have to move if this regime stays in place. You're going to have to go into compact cities, uh, move away from single-family fa- homes, which is also in the bullseye right. environmental movement. Oh, yeah. Move into a high-rise condo building or something like that, which the government is also going to regulate with respect to the building materials, which have to be, quote-unquote, green, the emissions, and, and what have you. So that's the long-term strategy. All of this has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with saving the planet from man-made sure. global warming, but everything to do with control. Control exercised by the government. They make the choices, and we do as they say. Um, my guest is Bonner Cohen. He's a senior fellow with the National Center for, for Public Policy Research. Bonner, before we talk about zoning, if we have time to do that, I want to ask you about this. Let's assume for a moment that they succeed and they ban cars using gasoline or diesel engines. We still need oil for a whole host of other things in order to survive on this planet I mean, it seems to me one of the great things about the petrochemical industry is that you can take oil and there's really very little waste from the refining of that oil into the various things that they do. They use all the components. It's very much of a uh, of a snout to tail uh, a way of utilizing a resource. Talk about that. Uh, yes, you're quite right. Uh, oil, and for that matter, uh, natural gas are both actually very uh, environmentally sound. Uh, there is remarkable little waste involved in e- either project. And to use a fashionable term, the environmental footprint of oil and natural gas is decidedly smaller than that of the various green technologies that we are being spoon-fed or, for that matter, force-fed. Uh, that includes wind and solar panels, uh, which are largely controlled the raw materials that go into them uh, by the People's Republic of China, which has a stranglehold on the supply chain that go into both, just as the People's Republic of China has a stranglehold on the raw materials that go into EV batteries and other batteries used as backup for wind and solar power when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. So what in the world are we doing uh, enriching and empowering uh, our main geopolitical rival? It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever when at the same time we are sitting on an abundant amount of oil and natural gas in this country, which is environmentally vastly superior uh, to the so-called green uh, energy sources that are being uh, imposed upon us, they are also much more reliable. And for the average American family, they're much more affordable. Well, listen, Bonner, how do folks find out more about the good work that you guys are doing at the National Center for Public Policy Research? Well, please check us out at our website, which is nationalcenter.org. I appreciate that. Uh, Nationalcenter.org. Bonner Cohen, thank you so very much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Andrew. I enjoy being here. I appreciate that. And, 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 and so I want to just gin on something because we've got, a, we've got a, a couple of seconds left before we go to the break here. The one thing Bonner touched on was this issue. And we're we're going to get a guest on next week to talk about this because things are largely uh, shaping up the shows today and shows tomorrow. Because, yes, I'm back tomorrow. 
When Bonner says that the environmentalists are going after the local single-family home, he's not overstating the case. Like everything else, one of the things we're going to talk about uh, is the issue of the whole-of-government approach to ideology that this administration is engaged in. Uh, the idea uh, of using multiple targets, uh, multiple agencies, multiple efforts to go after the same ideological goal, whether or not it is uh, to reshape the economy, uh, the energy economy, the, the sector here, uh, whether it is to go after religious freedom, uh, whether it is to go after and try to get uh, price controls on drugs. And so one of the things in terms of this ideological goal that they're working on is the feds with their uh, their their colleagues in the environmental community are working overtime to change local zoning laws and to find ways to change local zoning laws, whether it is to get involved with the organizations that uh, that uh, create zoning laws or to uh, engage in environmental efforts and grant efforts. But the bottom line is they want you out of your homes in the suburbs and into the cities. Listen, when we return, we're going to be joined by Eric Ruark from Numbers USA. President Biden is uh, visiting the border folks are very very unhappy about that you can get a hold of me at andrew underscore langer on twitter facebook.com slash andrew langer show this is tony katz today Well, welcome back, everybody. I am Andrew Langer in for Tony Katz right here on Tony Katz today. You can join the conversation. Facebook.com slash Andrew Langer show is how you text me while I'm on the air. You can also at me on the Twitter machine. I know they call it X. I don't call it X. I'm old school. I'm a boomer. They call I call I still call it Twitter. So you can you can message me there. Uh, I am uh, joined right now. Very excited about this. The, the president is finally visiting the border. He claims that there's he said, no impact. He's just fixing the mess that was left at the border by the Trump administration. Joining me right now to break down whether or not that's true is Eric Ruark from Members USA. Eric, is this true? Is this all President Trump's fault that we have this border crisis? Well, that seems to be the argument President Biden uh, is sticking to. I don't know how well he's going to sell it, but as far as it being you know, having any relation to the truth, no, it isn't. And, you know, I've made this point with others. The, the people, even people who don't like Trump would never vote for Trump, think he's the worst thing that ever happened to this country. Some of the reasons that they don't like him, or one of the reasons, is because they think he was too tough on illegal immigration, right? I, I, I seem uh, to remember so, this. So even people who aren't going to vote for Trump, I don't think are going to buy President Biden's argument because, you know, it clearly, you know, there's no comparison. The border wasn't secure in the sense that no one was getting over. But when you look at comparison between when President Trump left office and when President Biden came in office, promising to undo the things that Trump uh, had put in place, which he did on day one, it, it, the only thing you compare that what we're looking at now, as far as month to month, are previous months of the Biden administration. And right. what they're bragging about is that we, we're not setting a record this month for all time uh, apprehensions at the border. And that that's really what they're bragging about. It's not as bad as it was last month, but it's not President Trump's. You, you, you can like or dislike fact, President Trump, but what's happening at the border is not his fault. In fact, Carl, can you do me a favor? Carl, can you tee up clip, cut number five um, and, and get that on? I'll let you know when to, pl when to play it. Uh, Eric, this is um, uh, Mayorkas, Secretary Mayorkas, on MSNBC in September 2021, uh, essentially admitting that they had fundamentally changed uh, Trump's border policies. Uh, Carl, go ahead and play that. And I'd like to understand from you what Trump-era immigration policies have been banned, ended, 
reversed and if any investigations are underway by you? Uh, so we have rescinded so many uh, Trump immigration policies. It would take so much time to list them. So, so there you go. I mean, Eric, what are your thoughts on this? Mayorkas said this in 2021, and here we are, and yet somehow this is Donald Trump's fault. I, explain this to all of us. Well, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? I mean, he's, right. and this is the man who's also repeatedly said that the border was secure while everyone is looking at it and, and understanding that it isn't. And, and, you know, that's for us, Numbers USA, you know, we're the policy guys. So we're, we're, we see what they're doing. And when they came in and just basically opened the border up, we thought they can't keep this up, right? Because the blowback, the political blowback is going to be so great. And of course it was, but it took them three years to even pretend to take it seriously. And it was only a couple of weeks ago, if you remember, that President Biden actually said, well, there is a problem at the border. It's not my fault. And Congress needs to act. And if they don't act, you know, things are going to fall apart. And so he's blaming Congress for failing to act when he has the powers and the authority and the resources to do something about it. But the failure in the Senate of the Senate bill, which was a terrible bill. Right. Again, that became Donald Trump's fault, as opposed to it was a terrible bill. And there was a good bill that's already passed the House, H.R. 2, Secure the Border Act. And, you know, that sort of has become irrelevant, right, to the conversation. Sure. It's either if, the, if Congress won't give me the president, if they won't change the law in the way that I want them to do, I'm just going to do what I want anyway. And that's what we're seeing. And so this is, you know, I can say, I'm not sure he can sell that, but that's going to be really the big question. And it's amazing when you think about it, that we're having a rematch between Trump and Biden. And the number one issue is going to be immigration, particularly illegal immigration. And that's well, going to be a wild ride, I think. It's interesting because you are seeing uh, among certain Democrat elected officials, and I'm looking at Eric Adams as one up in New York, uh, starting to realize that there has been some uh, a, a major mistake has been made with regards to this. I actually got to do it with a, a host on a radio show that I was on a guest on today who claimed that we don't have open borders. I, I fail to see how you could claim that we don't have open borders right now. They look pretty open to me. But but the one of the problems Biden is running into is pushback from his own party, especially, you know, Democrat leaders who are having to deal with this. Talk about what's going on up in New York. Well, I, I just to your point about open borders, it's true. Yeah. Not every single person is getting in. But right. according to Secretary Mayorkas, over 85 percent of them are. And so, I mean, you can quibble with that. But I think most people would say the borders are pretty open, pretty wide open. Um, but th and this is the challenge to get to your point about Mayor Adams. And this is happening in other places, Chicago. We're seeing what happened in Georgia with that tragedy there. Yes. Uh, but but it's, it's hugely important because Mayor Adams, who, who has been staunchly supportive of the sanctuary policies there until very recently when they, you know, the, the, it's a one thing to say you support sanctuary cities. But when the effects are so profound and, and, the, and the amount of illegal immigration has increased so much under Biden, that they simply cannot house these people and, and, and they don't know who they are. There's crimes that are being committed and not everyone showing up in, in New York who's an illegal alien is committing crimes. But a lot of people are committing crimes because anyone, whether you want to get a job or whether you want to you're a member of a criminal gang, you're getting in the same way. And Mayor Adams is saying, let's revisit this sanctuary policy. And, and it's good that we're seeing this because it's putting pressure on the president. And, and members of Congress to do something. But really what Mayor Adams is saying is, you know, if, a, if someone who's here illegally commits a serious crime, we'll turn them over to ICE. 
right. right after they commit the crime, right? So, so he's not saying let's deal with people here who are illegal by whether they commit a, 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 a not, you know, don't attack someone or, or kill someone. If they're here illegally, that's grounds for turning them over to ICE. They get a traffic ticket or shoplifting or whatever it is. And so this is what we've seen from federal government, too. People who are being removed from the country are being removed only after they've committed a serious crime, and even not then. And and they're being let go. And and that's why, you know, when we see what happened in Georgia and other places where, where I live, there was a two-month-old who was caught in crossfire from wow. an MS-13 gang shootout. And the tragedy, you know, tragedies are going to happen, but when they're preventable right. and the government has had these people in custody and has released them back onto the streets, that's what makes these things so heartbreaking. Well, I, I want to get into this because you, as you said, by the way, we're talking with Eric Ruark from uh, Numbers USA. You guys are the policy people on these things. Uh, we did a panel at CPAC over the weekend with uh, with uh, Congressman Doug Collins from Georgia, former congressman from Georgia. Mm-hmm. Right. And he, he has a really interesting posit, um, which is that we, we spend a lot of time talking about Democrats pushing these policies because they want to increase their voting base. And and Congressman Collins says, yeah, that's true, but it's not the whole truth. What it really is, when you bring in 10, 20, 30, 40 million new people, you have to expand the size and scope of government to to deal with that, to, to service that population. This is really about expanding government. Uh, uh, th- that's why the Democrats are in favor of this. Where do you come down on this or does it matter if it's voters or not? It's just it's a problem in the end. Well, most recent immigrants, you know, people who are citizens and have the right to vote, tend to vote for uh, Democrats in the first generation. Yep. Uh, that's true. And, you know, and, it, and that changes over time, but it takes a long time before they, they stop voting Democrat, them the children or grandchildren. But it's also important to note that the size of the state's population determines how many seats, you know, representation in Congress and the House, and also the way federal funds are allocated. So it doesn't matter whether a resident of the state is a U.S. citizen or non-U.S. citizen or even a legal resident. They're still counted in the census. And that's, I think, a very important thing to consider is that uh, governmental power from a state is increased the larger the population is, no matter how that population grows. And the way that federal funds are sent from D.C. to the states also is dependent upon the size of the state. But also we need to look at the Democratic Party, which we traditionally think of as the party of working Americans, that's no longer the case. And that hasn't been the case, I, I would say, probably since Bill Clinton. And so not only is it growing the size of, of power of states who have these large populations, it's also the fact that the Democrats are beholden to the, the business lobby in D.C. who are right. clamoring for cheaper workers. And, and that's the reality. And I'm, that's not saying the Republican Party is a working class party, but we're seeing a shift within the Republican Party, where they're starting to make those arguments. And I think and Trump is a good example where he got working class voters. There's a shift going on and, and how that's going to play out in the next election, I think, is really going to determine the outcome. So the president goes down to the border. Do you expect anything other than platitudes and, and uh, shade thrown at Donald Trump or is something substantive going to happen here? I think President Biden's going to say, you know, Trump's this is Trump's fault uh, and people are going to, you know, whether what, you know, in the media, whether or not you're, you know, you're in the camp, Biden camp, depends on how you're going to report on that. I think the real, what we really want to look at is Trump's messaging, because what we're seeing in Congress and also what we're seeing at the policy level, everyone knows that Trump was tough on illegal immigration. What he needs to communicate is 
what will he put in place in a second term if he wins the second term? Uh, not only at, at the executive level, because that's the problem. He put something in place. Biden came in and undid it. The next president can do right. something else. We need permanent fixes, and you have to be able to work with Congress. And and I I, I think for President Trump, what he his platform that he offers. Here's what I want to do as far as legislatively, and here's how I'm going to get it done. I think that's the challenge for President Trump, not uh, you know convincing people he's tougher, but convincing them that he has a plan of action and he can implement. Eric Ruark, how do folks find out more about the good work you guys are doing at NumbersUSA? NumbersUSA.com. Go and check it out. Eric Ruark, thank you so very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, you're welcome. So uh, when we return, we're going to be uh, talking more about this immigration issue. i got some great clips to play. Uh, Cringe Jean-Pierre talking about uh, the president going down to the border. I'm Andrew Langer. This is Tony Katz Today. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. No, we don't fear the Reaper here on Tony Katz today. I'm Andrew Langer. I'm in for Tony uh, uh, today and through next week. So glad uh, I can join you all on this quest. Tony's going to be joining us in just a couple of minutes here. Following on the heels of Eric Ruark uh, being on with us uh, from Numbers USA, I, I want to play this. Uh, this. It really is a form of gaslighting what this administration is doing vis-a-vis uh, -vis not accepting culpability for their own policy decision-making. Uh, here is this morning, uh, Corinne Jean-Pierre, the White House spokeswoman, uh, was on, as I said, CNN. Uh, here she is talking about uh, Biden's trip to the border. Let's play number two. The American people are going to hear directly from President Biden today about what he has done to continue moving forward in dealing with this issue and how Republicans have gotten in the way. No. <laughs> Here's the thing. We didn't get into this with Eric Roark. Um, a little bit. I mean, Eric, Eric kind of teased this up, which is to say that one of, the, one of the few powers that the executive branch has delegated to it is national defense and the president has all kinds of powers that congress has uh, created by statute uh, to give the president power to deal with securing the border and so the buck stops with him as we said you know something once again let's let's play cut number five to hear what mayorkas had to say in 2021 and i'd like to understand from you what trump era immigration policies have been banned ended, reversed, and if any investigations are underway by you. Uh, so we have rescinded so many uh, Trump immigration policies, it would take so much time to list them. Yeah, I, yes, this is what they did. They came in. The, but Donald Trump was a big old meanie towards, uh, towards uh, migrants, uh, especially those migrating here illegally. He was just a big old meanie, and we needed to deal with it. So there are too many Trump-era policies that we rescinded. Rescinded. This is what he said, the Secretary of Homeland Security. Too many to count, too many to list here. 
uh, and, and yet uh, and yet Donald Trump and the Republicans are the ones standing in the way uh, of this of this crisis. And of course, if the press were meaningful, they would press her on this. Now, one of the things that Eric mentioned was this situation down in Georgia. The student, Lakin Riley, who was killed by an illegal immigrant uh, uh, last week. Um, and and so Crin Jean-Pierre was asked about this as well. Let's play cut number three. One of the things that, that some Americans are focused on are crimes that are allegedly being committed by migrants who are in the country illegally. There was the death of Lake and Riley in Georgia. There's been an arrest made there. Republicans are directly blaming President Biden for this. Uh, Republican Senator Josh Hawley said, quote, these deaths are on him. What's the White House response to that? So first of all, I want to offer uh, our condolences to the family uh, of Lake. And I mean, this is a horrific, horrific loss for any family. And obviously, uh, any if whoever is found guilty, uh, we need to make sure that uh, make sure that that happens. And obviously, uh, we don't want to uh, we don't want to see uh, anything happen like that again. But here's the thing: we have done the work. Uh, to make sure we're dealing with a broken immigration system. The Republicans have gotten in the way. I mean, that's just cr- First of all, we've got to make sure once he's found guilty, we need to make sure that happens. I don't even know what that means. I mean, that's just that's just that's just gobbledygook. That's just that's just word salad. But the reality is that before Joe Biden took office, we had the border under relative control. Eric Rourke is correct. You know, people would get through. Um, and, and this myth that they're saying uh, that uh, that uh, uh, the border is not open because they're catching 15 percent uh, and sending back 15 percent of the folks who are migrating. I'm sorry. Yeah, I think he said 15. Maybe it was 20 percent. Uh, no, it was 15. He said 85 percent of the folks coming over are being allowed to stay. That's millions of people. And it's just a numbers game, right? I mean, this is the thing that 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 bothers me about what Crin Jean Pierre is saying is that in the end, you know, it is. It, it, she's right. There, are, there are tragedies, and there's always going to be crime that occurs. But you know something? When you let in 10, 20, 30, 40 million new people into the country illegally, and they're not vetted, and we don't know who they are, we don't know what their backgrounds are. The numbers of crimes are going to go up, maybe not as a proportion, but let's just say the numbers are going to, the sheer numbers themselves are going to go up, and the severity, it's just a a matter of of playing the odds, the severity of those crimes is going to be more and more horrific. That's a problem. Listen, maybe I'm I'm biased on all this. I I watched... uh, I, I watched, um, 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 oh, good Lord, um, not not Scirocco, um... Oh, good Lord. The the Josh Brolin movie. Uh, I watched Day of the Soldado yesterday and uh, Sicario. Sicario that was the first one and then Sicario 2, the Day of the Soldado. So it's all all very, very fresh in my mind about dealing with these issues and the horrific nature of the crimes. Listen, when we return after the 1 p.m. news, going to be joined by our good friend and host of this show, Tony Katz, coming to you live from Israel. So very glad he's joining us. Ellie Gardy from the American Spectator as well. Tim Lee from the Center for Individual Freedom. You want to drop me a note while I'm on the air? Facebook.com slash Andrew Langer Show or at Andrew underscore Langer on X. This is, of course, Tony Katz today. 
Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Well, good afternoon, everybody, and a happy Thursday to one and all. I am Andrew Langer in for Tony Katz today on Tony Katz Today. And joining me right now, I want to get right to it, is my old friend Tony Katz, your old friend Tony Katz, uh, on the ground in Tel Aviv. Tony, how was the uh, Turkish coffee? Uh, the Turkish coffee was good, kid. It was good. I have had today... And remember, today has been going on since yesterday. I have had 43 cups of coffee. No. Um, if, if it could be made in a cafe in Tel Aviv, I have drank the coffee. And it has been <laughs> it has been glorious. You know, the whole the people who do international travel on, on the regular and, and make these flights, I don't I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they keep their clocks, you know, in 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 sync, uh, I'm seven hours ahead. So right now it's it's just after eight p.m. in Tel yes. Aviv. The sun has has already uh, set, and I have slept maybe you know on, on that plane ride uh, three hours, three and a half hours yeah. in the last thirty six. It's it is surreal. Remember, remember what uh, remember what the guy on the plane with John McClane said to him in Die Hard. You you take off your shoes, you take off your socks, and you make fists with your toes. That's how you, that's how you get through it, Tony. So you got to go make fists with your toes. That is how you have the amount of people who have reached out to me. Hey, man, don't forget to take an aspirin. You need a baby aspirin. You don't want to get the deep vein thrombosis. And all I can oh think God. is, I'm worried about the plane having an issue. Now I have to worry about <laughs> deep vein thrombosis. Can 2024 just leave me alone already? It's all, it's all I want, just the simple, simple things. Um, uh, I so so the, the the stuff starts in earnest, you know, where yes. our travels down to a, a place called Raim, where that's where the music festival massacre took sure. place when the terrorists uh, uh, of Hamas uh, attacked. I will be in in a town called Maharia, which is. Uh, north of, of Akko, very close to the Lebanon border. We're going to be touring hospitals that are running on skeleton crews. We're going to actually be doing some farming and talking to, to, to those people. So all that is now getting started in, in earnest. Today was just a little bit of kind of get the flavor of Tel Aviv and what's going on here. And, and, and what is, well, how would you describe the flavor of Tel Aviv? It's it is a very strange thing to watch. This Israel's at war, and everybody knows it, and and no one should think for a second that the people of Tel Aviv aren't fully aware of it. The um, "Bring Them Home Now" signs are everywhere, every cafe, right. every shop, everywhere. The posters of of the the kidnapped by by Hamas are up everywhere. When you get to Ben Gurion Airport, which is the airport uh, in Tel right. Aviv, and there's this very, very large ramp that after you get uh, out of the uh, the gates and you're walking towards customs, every three feet, there is a poster 
reminding you. There, it, 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 is, it is everywhere. It is ever-present. But those cafes are full, and people right. are drinking coffee, and people are out for a run, and people are shopping. The amount of strollers that I have seen, small children – teenagers having a, a coffee or having a drink and, and they're like they're done with school for, for, for the day. And, and it's, 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 it is, it strikes one as a bit surreal. Like, like we know what's happening and we talk about it. Andrew, you talk about it and the other work right. Right, that you do and the podcasts that you do and, and the consulting things that you do. We're, we're fully aware. And, and we certainly are uh, on the show. We're talking about it and, and, and latest updates. But you take a look at the people of Tel Aviv, and for a second, you're like, wait a second, do they know what's going on? And sure. when you talk to them, as, as you start engaging with them, what you start hearing is, we want Hamas gone. Everybody wants Hamas gone. The country is completely aligned. But these people have lives that they have to right. live, and they're living them. And and there's a certain level of in, in, in Tel Aviv, because it is such a metropolitan city, it is such a, it is so huge. The the skyline of Tel Aviv, you know, I I was last here in 1989, last in in, wow. in Israel. So you know, as many people have explained to me, it, it wasn't even a country then. Like like sure. the, the the growth of these last years has been exponential, and it is. There are cranes everywhere. It's it. It is an unbelievable skyline, and these people are living their lives. They're, it is a little bit different in Tel Aviv because of the international flair of it than, I think, the the rest of, of Israel. But it's not like anybody has forgotten. It's just life is happening. Well, right. I mean, it, two, two things that I'm reminded of. N- number one is let's not forget that up until a couple of years ago, uh, we had a period of, of relatively unprecedented peace, you know, as a result of the Abraham Accords. That's helped what has spurred a lot of this construction over there. There's reliance on the stability that was existing. Biden come in, comes in and the order uh, was upended. Uh, at the same time, I'm also in terms of this issue of living your lives. I don't know if you I'm sure you had conversations with our good friend, the late great Cameron Gray, who had downloaded that app that had the uh, the rocket attacks, the notification of the rocket attacks app. Did you ever talk to him about this, Tony? Uh, about about those specific apps? No, and that conversation. Well, he, had, he had he had he had downloaded that app, the app that notified you if there was a rocket attack uh, happening somewhere in Israel, and he tried living for several days, and it was just one of these situations. Again, this was during Barack Obama's tenure as president, so this is before Donald Trump came in and things changed. But the number of attacks, he's like, you know, folks try to live their lives, but they have these apps that notifies them if, if something's happening in their lives. It's the way you try to live defiantly and purposefully. I think that's what I'm what I'm getting at here. It's part of what, what goes on there. You're going to learn more about this. Who are you over there with, uh, and, and who else is on the – can you talk about who else is on the trip with you? Yeah, so, so two things. To, to that point, um, recognizing that a state of war is culture in, in Israel is, is, something, is something else. When I went – uh, uh, back in the day, I had come back and I had done a speech. I was I was a kid. I was yeah. I, I was in my teens, my late teens, and 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 I had done a speech at, at my synagogue. So this is New Jersey, and there were two thousand people there. It was the Jewish holidays, and I had given a speech where I'd actually held up a a bullet 
that went into an M16 and, and was explaining that this is the culture. And yes, absolutely, in Tel Aviv, uh, soldiers with M16s, I, I, walking right past me as if it is absolutely nothing because it is absolutely nothing. Right. Uh, these, these people, young and old, have always lived with this state of, of, of war in this, in this culture. I have two different rocket apps on my phone right now um, uh, to, to give me some level of awareness if things go on. And I'm telling you that for some parts of my tour, right here in, in my hotel room is my bulletproof vest. I brought it wow. with me. It's right here. And of course, it's going to be worn. Some people might say, oh, sure, Tony, you're like, you're really worried. Anybody who is anybody w would understand that, hey, of course, uh, there's a level of concern and, 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 and I was very, very rational level of concern. But people going about their lives, it, 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 I, I say it is jarring because it is. It, it is as, it's, it's stunning to witness. But this is every day for them. Every day is walking down Ben Yehuda Street in Tel Aviv and, and, and knowing that someone could do something because that's the way it's been. What the hope is in, in the people that I, I, I have spoken to is that there, there are no more straws. There are, beyond, we're beyond last straw. This has to end. Now, as, yeah, as yeah. for the group... As for the group, Andrew, uh, so it's the Jewish Federation of Indianapolis, along with the National Jewish Federation. There's something, uh, the Partnership for, uh, for, for, for Western Galilee, Partnership with Western Galilee. So um, that, that's who, uh, if, if you will, sponsored uh, this. Uh, I, I paid my, my, my own travel and, and, and everything else, um, hmm. but it's, it's just this opportunity to Sure. To meet with mayors and meet with soldiers, meet with these hospital workers, meet with people in, in the Druze community, D-R-U-Z-E. Uh, people forget that there are Israeli Arabs all over the place who sure. absolutely recognize that Israel is not the problem. Hamas is the problem. This idea that somehow the Arab world is, is against Israel. Wait, we can point to people. We can point to nations. We can point to terrorist groups. But Israeli Arabs, they're living good lives, and they want right. to continue living good lives. They're not on the side of Hamas. Hamas is the enemy. Hamas is keeping them from being able to live a rational, rational life. So, so with this, this, this group, um, uh, where I, you know, it's it's people from the Indianapolis area where where I'm at. There's people here from Texas, people from from Ohio, different levels of leadership within these organizations and others. Um, and, and really people who are in their, uh, for lack of a better word, community, trying to get people to understand what, what level of horror show is really going on here, the level of upending. You're talking about tens of thousands of Israeli refugees. They have no homes. The homes have been destroyed. You're talking about wow. uh, you know, farms and farmers the people who normally are working these farms, you have people who come from the Philippines and other places who, who get work permits in Israel and are working. They're not here. And other people, they're on the front lines. They're, they're fighting this, this war. So there, there's a serious food uh, conversation, an issue that's happening. There's the question of, you know, uh, while the, the hospitals have doctors, what about the staff to clean the hospital? They're on the, fr they're on the right. lines. Um, there's, there's just been an upending 
of society and and our media, uh, Andrew, it, it, they're, they don't they don't talk about this in the slightest. And that's one of the right. things I wanted to talk to. So when the opportunity came up, you know, off I went. Well, there you go. Listen, we're going to have you on every day, Tony. I wish you all the best. So glad you're doing this. I'm going to be reporting on this. I'm more than a little jealous, my friend, as you and I have, have talked about. Uh, but please, I, I say this on the show, and I mean this uh, with the utmost sincerity. Please stay safe uh, while you're over there. We need you to come home safe and sound, my friend. That is that is my plan. Uh, my my family is also very interested in me coming home safe and sound. <laughs> uh, and uh, we'll have everything over at uh, at TonyCats.com for people who listen uh, on, on, on my uh, flagship WIBC. Uh, we'll have things over there as well. We're going to share things with our our, our other uh, stations Monday through Friday, our weekend show. We're going to be sharing things with all of them. So Everybody will be able to catch the videos and, and a lot of the conversations we're having. So I will uh, check in with you tomorrow. Well, good, Tony. And I'm hoping you're going to get some good barbecue while you're over there. I know that's not uh, number one on your priority, but it certainly should be up there in the top five. You take care, my friend. We'll talk to you tomorrow. If I find good barbecue in Israel, I'll let you know. Cats, host of Tony Kelly. I'm in for Tony Cats today. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Wasn't always fun talking to Tony. I, I look forward to talking to him uh, uh, tomorrow and, and all while he is in Israel. I'm Andrew Langer in for Tony Katz today. Joining us right now is Ellie Gardy. She is a, a columnist with the American Spectator. And Ellie, I'm sorry, we're delayed a little bit. I hope you Tony, Tony's over in Israel, so I'm, I'm glad you can join us. Um, let's start here. You were at CPAC over the weekend. How did Christy Nome do? Yes, I was. I saw Christy Nome's speech, and she did a good job, but I noticed the room wasn't jumping up and down for her. They're not completely enamored with her, even though it seems like she is the most likely option for Trump's vice presidential candidate. I'm not entirely certain. I, I made a bet with somebody over the weekend uh, at CPAC uh, that, uh, that he, he thinks it's going to be Doug Burgum. Uh, I think it's going to be uh, Tulsi Gabbard. So we <laughs> We will see. Uh, interesting. I, I am. Yeah, I, there's I, certainly some movement around Tulsi Gabbard, so that's a good bet. Well, yeah, yes, I, I, I think so. He made a compelling case that this idea that Donald Trump does not like to be overshadowed, uh, he wants some. Somebody else made the case, you know, that these tickets have to balance each other, and and Trump can be a little, uh, a little, uh, a little everywhere, like all, you know, every sort of anyway, a little, uh, a little hyper. Uh, so someone who's a little bit more calm might might balance it out a little better. But let's go here you're doing a lot of work and i appreciate this on what's going on in california what's going on with gavin newsom right now right so gavin newsom is currently facing another scandal uh so there's a new law that's requiring fast food restaurants in california to pay their fast food workers twenty dollars an hour this is crazy but there's this very oddly specific exemption where fast food restaurants that sell bread as a standalone item don't have to pay their workers $20 an hour. Okay. And so why could this be? And people figured out, well, it's because Gavin Newsom is corrupt, essentially. 
So Panera has the inside loop with Gavin Newsom um, because uh, someone who owns many Panera franchises in California has a long-standing relationship with Gavin Newsom. And okay. so as a result, he convinced Newsom. And, you know, this is all publicly known now that because of this business relationship with Greg Flynn, Gavin Newsom has exempted all these Panera. So now there's a lot of controversy because it looks pretty blatantly corrupt. So it's another well, step back. Well, I mean, right. I mean, the other the other option would be, you know, McDonald's should start selling McBread. You know, uh, uh, Burger <laughs> King could start spelling, is selling loaves oh, of absolutely. Rye King. You know, I mean, Every it, it, restaurant in California is now going to be selling bread. Dunkin' Donuts and menu. bread. I mean, it, it's, it, <laughs> it is. But I mean, right, doesn't it underscore the fact, uh, Ellie, that, that regardless of when you go down this road, right, you create these complex situations. There's always a way people find a workaround. Um, but is there is there a serious recall effort underway for Newsom? I mean, is this is this the thing that could completely trash his 2028 hopes? Yeah, so it just came out this week that they are trying for another recall offer against Newsom, but it will be a big uphill battle because the last time they had the recall, they lost by Newsom held on to his position by 24 percentage points. So, okay. you know, coming off of that, it's really hard to have a recall stand. But there is some movement toward uh, being successful, given that uh, Newsom's approval ratings have been falling to their lowest levels. So he actually recorded his lowest level of approval in November. Wow. Even worse than after the French laundry scandal, which, you know, we thought that was a big national moment. But people in California were pretty upset to see Newsom going all over the country, acting like he was campaigning for president. Meanwhile, California is in total meltdown, given the homelessness crisis, the crime, just the quality of living is really going down. And, you know, Newsom is... Looking toward the White House, as always. So, We're talking with Ellie Gardy. She writes for the American Spectator. She also does a podcast for them, uh, the uh, the Spectator PM podcast. And one of the things you wrote about last week, you talked about this week on the podcast, is Newsom's impending budget disaster. Uh, that's a whole other avenue of it. But, I mean, this is this goes without saying. It's California. There's no there's no accountability. But what's uh, what's specifically happening with the budget right now? Oh, yeah. So California is facing a major problem right now. They have a $73 billion budget shortfall, which that is a ginormous number. So the budget is supposed to be $226 billion. So being $73 billion short, that is just, that is a problem. (laughs) So Newsom is denying reality right now. He's trying to claim, oh, it's just $36 billion. Well, it's really not. So... (laughs) I mean, I mean, you know, well, listen, I know exactly how to solve it, right? If you, if you, if you make fast food wages above twenty dollars an hour, all of a sudden, other all these people who are working fast food jobs, they'll all be paying more taxes. I mean, regardless of the fact that now, when you make a a a a, a Big Mac fifteen dollars, you know, fewer people are going to buy them. I mean, I this is this is the craziness of this sort of the democratic balancing scheme, isn't it, Ellie? Oh, yeah. I mean, Gavin Newsom created this situation. This does not need to be the situation. This is the richest state in America. They have some of the highest taxes in the country, and yet they're $73 billion in the hole. And that's a direct result of spending $51 billion on climate projects. Oh, let's give away two years of free community college. 
Oh, and if you immigrated here illegally, let's give you free health insurance. It's it's crazy. <laughs> Ellie, listen, we gotta we gotta leave it there. Thank you so very much for calling us today or talking with us today. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thanks. That was Ellie Gardy. You can follow her on uh, Twitter at at, uh, at Ellie Gardy. Um, she writes for the American Spectator, spectator.org. Uh, when we return, we're going to be joined by uh, Tim Lee, my old buddy Tim Lee from the Center for Individual Freedom. You can tweet at me at Andrew underscore Langer on Twitter. Also message me on uh, Facebook, facebook.com slash Andrew Langer Show. I'm Andrew Langer in for Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. We are back, everybody. Hi. Andrew Langer in for Tony Katz on Tony Katz Today. Joining me right now, my old buddy. I've been uh, spending a lot of time talking to my, my good friend Tim Lee from the Center for Individual Freedom. He and I are working on a couple of different issues together. And I want to start here, Tim. I uh, did my CPAC panel over the weekend with Doug Collins in which we talked about what's going on with the National Institutes for Standards and Technology and this march in rule uh, regarding prescription drugs. And we just filed comments on it. I know you filed comments on it. Talk about what this marching rule is and how it goes far beyond seizing the patents for uh, for prescription drugs. Yeah. So going back a little bit, um, The Economist magazine, which isn't far right as much as some people want to assume that it's a right leaning magazine. Uh, the Economist magazine uh, labeled. The Buy Dole Act and by Buy B A H Y, uh, named after a former senator from Indiana, along right. with Bob Dole. Uh, in 1980, they passed what's commonly referred to as the Buy Dole Act, and what it did was it granted greater uh, patent rights to organizations, uh, nonprofits, and, and universities that were receiving some federal funding. So, you know, for instance, you work at, let's say, University of Maryland or um, William and Mary, since that's right. uh, near and dear to your heart. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you're undertaking some experiments uh, with potential new drugs, and, and you can patent that. Well, before the Bayh-Dole Act, you know, the government just retained those rights. You couldn't market it. The university couldn't. You know, a small organization couldn't. Federal government retained rights to it, and they rarely, if ever, did uh, pursue those patents or market them. And so what the Bayh-Dole Act did is it allowed uh, private groups to own those patents, which enabled, obviously, the marketing and promotion uh, of those inventions. And since then, we've seen just an explosion in innovation, uh, whether it's the pharmaceutical industry or elsewhere, um, and The Economist magazine labeled the Bayh-Dole Act the greatest bit of legislation that has come out. Of, I, I'm trying to use the, recall the exact word that they used. I think they said most inspired right. uh, legislation to come out of Congress over the last 50 years. And so it, it's been very fruitful. We're talking tens of thousands of patents, whereas before that we were, they were numbered in the hundreds. 
uh, before 1980. So the point of all this is the Bayh-Dole Act of 1980 was a phenomenally uh, good bit of legislation. It was bipartisan, and it allowed for a lot of new inventions, uh, you know, a half century later almost. So the Bayh-Dole Act contained what is called a march-in. Right. right. M-A-C-R-H-N. Right. And so what that did is it said, look, if some university, for instance, gets a patent, but it's not marketing the thing that it invented, in some circumstances, if there's an overwhelming public need for it, uh, the government can, quote unquote, march in and sort of possess that patent and say, look, this is needed for public health, um, and, and they can take it from there. Now, that has never been granted, okay? We're talking about an exception to the Bayh-Dole Act, which grants these patent rights, that has never been enacted because it's a dramatic step and a drastic step. Right. Now, let's talk price controls, which I know is another one of your issues uh, on which you talk a lot. Here's where we are right now. The Biden administration, especially with its outrageous deficit spending, is looking for ways to cut corners. Well, what's one of the industries they're targeting? The pharmaceutical industry. Of course and all these life-saving drugs. So they have this bright idea that what we're going to do is we're going to activate those march-in rights in one of the subsections of the Bayh-Dole Act because we want to make the contention that by not selling these drugs at a certain right that we find acceptable, you're essentially depriving the public uh, of those inventions. And so that's all a long way of saying that uh, the Biden administration wants to march in and confiscate patents because they don't find the price at which those drugs are being sold satisfactory. It's essentially a a price control. Now, one other thing to make very clear, about 20 years ago or so, uh, Senators By and Dole, they were no longer senators at this point, they were retired, but they wrote a letter to the Wall Street, not the Wall Street Journal, excuse me, the Washington Post, and they specifically anticipated this potential in the future, that the government mm. would try to, quote-unquote, march in and confiscate patents as a form of price control. They specifically said the law does not allow that. And so here we are. Uh, it violates the text of the law. It violates the spirit of, of the law, as the two senators for which it is named have explicitly said. And it constitutes price controls. And I know you talk about this on your show a lot. Sure. The only thing that price controls do, price controls don't reduce a price. They just make that good uh, unavailable. You know, right. think of gas lines in the 1970s. And so what we're going to see is a lot of, of current investors won't invest in the research and development of these things if they know the government can just come in and confiscate it if they want to impose a price control. And so that's going to literally kill a lot of people. One more quick point to make, uh, and I think a lot of people, I wish more people were aware of this, but most people aren't. The United States accounts for two-thirds of all new medicines introduced to the world every year. Right. Now, why is that? It's because we have very strong patent rights. The United States has the strongest system of intellectual property rights, and intellectual property includes patents as well as copyrights and trade secrets in the world. And that helps explain why we are the most inventive nation in the world. And so all of this is going to kneecap patent rights, and it's going to end up hurting people out there, consumers who rely on these drugs and these inventions 
literally save lives. And so that's the issue we're facing now. It violates the law, but uh, that's rarely an impediment to the Biden administration, as you know. Right. So we're talking with Tim Lee from the Center for Individual Freedom. And Tim, I had a conversation with David Kapos yesterday, who's the former director of the Patent and Trademark Office and was an undersecretary of commerce for the Obama administration. And he is very much opposed to what uh, the National Institutes for Standards and Technology is doing in this regard. One of the points that he made, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this, is that at a time in which universities were talking about the cost of a college education and the university universities raising tuition rates, trying to pay for various expansions, this is going to have an impact on the, the all, all research, all, all universities that do any kind of research that relies on these kinds of research grants at a time when we can ill afford to cut off uh, uh, market-based funding to them. Talk about that. Wow, what an excellent point. And uh, that's a good get from you, especially coming you. from somebody who ideologically is on the other side. And it's absolutely right. And so you're talking about, I mean, I know you've talked on your show a lot about inflation at the university level and how tuition and, and costs for students have outpaced, outpaced regular inflation. That's absolutely correct. So, you know, for listeners out there, sort of walk yourself through how this process works. You work at a university, you're a professor or you're a student or other worker that's working on one of these potential inventions. Well, you know that even if you receive a little bit of federal funding, you're going to be able to market that, and you're going to actually make money on it. So recouping your investment. Well, like you just said, if you, the university, are not going to be able to recoup this because the Biden administration has the bright idea that it needs to be sold at a lower price, you know, it, that's not going to bring you those licensing fees and those profits that you're talking about here. And so that was an absolutely great point, and, and congratulations to you for for getting that, that confession uh, from somebody who's presumably center-left uh, on this issue to say, look, when you invent something and you have a patent right to it, you can license that for money and recoup your costs. And whether it's an endowment for your university or scholarships for future uh, students at the, at the university, that's another price we'll pay. So in addition to the, the cost in lost drugs that can save lives that we talked about earlier, that's another great point that uh, it's going to hurt universities themselves and uh, kneecap their ability to attract and, and retain great students who might not otherwise be able to attend those universities. Fantastic We're talking. Point. We're talking with Tim Lee. He is with the Center for Individual Freedom. Let me shift gears a little bit. One of the things I wanted to talk about over the weekend with Brendan Carr from the FCC, we didn't get a chance to talk about it, was rural bread, excuse me rural broadband and the ntia this is something that's really hot off the presses uh again with this whole of government approach to things and trying to take control of the internet what is the biden administration and the ntia doing about rural broadband and why should we be concerned about this especially in indiana well we're again talking about price controls and it's funny i mean few people are as well-rounded as you are in terms of your breadth of knowledge and so yeah that that sort of Screeching shift from drug, uh, drugs and pharmaceuticals to uh, uh, broadband expansion. Um, you always got to be on your toes with Andrew Langer. Sure. Um, so <laughs> yeah, we're still talking about price controls here, though, and, and so it does make a smooth transition. Here's what happened. Um, back during you know, the, the Infrastructure Act, uh, which was, again, a bipartisan bill, there were billions and billions of dollars uh, that were 
sort of dedicated to broadband expansion. So, for instance, in Virginia, there's a lot of uh, rural communities out there that don't have broadband. And so there's this noble cause that, uh, look, it's just like building a highway that gets to some of these rural communities or building, uh, or, excuse me, building telephone wires or, or power lines that go out to these communities. Well, we're going to expand broadband to reach those communities that don't have it as well. So it's a noble cause. Um, but when the infrastructure law was passed, the specific terms of the law said this will not be used to impose price controls on that broadband. And so fast forward to now, what do we have? We have the Biden administration, and it's uh, it's NTIA, which stands for National Telecommunications and Information Association. You have them essentially imposing price controls. So Virginia right. wanted to sort of – what happens is from the federal law – the federal government sort of uh, disperses these funds to individual states, and the individual states sort of handle the expansion. So it's a, an example of federalism as well. But Virginia sure. went out and said, okay, here's our plan, and here's how we want to go about it. Well, they're not getting approval unless they agree to these price controls. Here's the problem. As we talked about earlier, price controls don't reduce price. They just make a good or service unavailable which is the case here. You have a lot of private broadband companies that say, look, I'd love to expand these communities. I can't do it for less than a certain amount. I'm just going to lose money on that. It will drive me out of business. So what are we supposed to do here? But yet the federal government is going to insist on imposing these price controls saying that, look, you can expand broadband to these places and you can have some of these federal grants to help do it. When you do, you're not going to be able to charge over, let's say, $20 per month. And then the company says, well, I, I can't do this for less than $40 a month, for instance. And so uh, it's once again an, an instance of, of price controls. And a couple of points, I, I mentioned earlier that the, the law itself prohibits this. But then uh, some of the people who, who have testified, the NTIA's administrator, Alan Davidson, specifically said in sworn testimony before the Senate, no, we do not engage in weight regulation. It's not right. on the agenda. And then the Secretary of Commerce, Gina Raimondo, made the same commitment. And this is, again, uh, under oath to the Senate. I'm quoting her here. Yes, we do not require that. I want to be clear. We are not <laughs> rate regulating. We are not price setting. And we are not requiring states to do that. Well, now they actually are. So not sure. only are they violating the law, they're violating their own testimony. So terrible example that's going to hurt ultimately hurt people who need broadband well got it hey tim we got to leave it there how do folks find out more about the work you guys are doing at cfif it's uh, cfif.org cfif stands for center for individual freedom.org and uh, check us out and we love working with you and uh, keep up the great work andrew amen thank you tim i appreciate it you take care thank you you too that was uh, Tim Lee with the Center for Individual Freedom. I do have a longer form interview if you want to go check that out on my Lunch Hour podcast. I'm going to talk a little bit about that when we come back. Uh, when we return, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, what's going on down at the border. Want to hear from the Border Patrol. I'm Andrew Langer. This is Tony Katz today. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you.
true story. I will, on occasion, drive my wife up the wall when I go down the uh, the country rock road uh, with this song, Heartache Tonight, uh, then uh, followed up by, well, the uh, pop country as well, uh, Elvira by the Oak Ridge Boys, and uh, and then uh, uh, you know finishing it up with a, with a little Kenny Rogers, uh, and sometimes Kenny Rogers in the first edition. Anyway, I'm Andrew Langer, uh, in for Tony Katz, uh, while Tony is in Israel. So glad you can join us. And I teed this up before. I'm going to talk about this. Maybe we won't even get to the the Border Patrol thing. Um, if you're liking what you hear, and you like what you hear, you, you, you get a chance. I do three, count them, three podcasts now. Uh, yes, as, I, as I'm fond of saying, in America today, everybody is born in a podcast. Uh, and if you don't have one, then chances are I may have taken it from you. And for that, I am only mildly apologetic. Uh, but I do a show with my buddy Jerry Rogers, who's the editor of Real Clear Policy. Uh, it's normally uh, you know about once a week, though occasionally we have to skip because we're so busy now, uh, called Andrew and Jerry Save the World. Uh, we've got two really great episodes out now from CPAC. Uh, had some good interviews there and a lot of fun. Uh, if you get a chance, you should watch the video that I put up yesterday for our CPAC Day 2, in which a friend of ours, you may have heard from her before, her name is Mary Walter, she's a radio host as well. Mary Walter joined us, and she uh, she saw a guy walking through CPAC with a puppet on his arm uh, called Puppet Carlson, maybe it was Muppet Carlson, I honestly don't remember and really don't care. And as, as, uh, as we're sitting there, Jerry is muttering, oh my God, she's not bringing this puppet over. Oh, she did. And I, of course, because that's who I am, I engaged with the puppet. Uh, Jerry, if you watch the video, did everything he can, could to not look in the puppet's eyes. He was looking everywhere else but the puppet. It lasted for about two minutes, but it's well worth watching. Andrew and Jerry Save the World. Uh, I also do a, uh, a, uh, a long-form interview show that I alluded to. I mentioned, didn't even allude to it. Mentioned with, uh, with, with the, in the interview with Tim Lee. It's called the Lunch Hour. It's put out by a guy, uh, an outfit called uh, the Federal Newswire. Uh, it is a long form interview show. It is a good time. Uh, really interesting guests. Uh, uh, sometimes I even will interview Democrats if they are willing to come on the show with me. Uh, so go and check that out. Both the Lunch Hour and Andrew and Jerry Save the World are available on YouTube and wherever fine podcasts are found. All kinds of different platforms out there. Uh, Spotify. Uh, Amazon, uh, Pandora, Apple, whatever. You can check it out there uh, as well. And then finally, I'm, I just started doing uh, a few months ago a regulatory podcast called Swamp Secrets, exposing regulatory dark matter. Uh, that's good stuff. Got a great interview with uh, the former Prime Minister of Great Britain coming up on that. So go and check it out. The last hour of the show is coming up. Going to be joined by Scott Shepard from the Free Enterprise Project, Barry Hinckley from the Redeclaration of Independence. Democrats are going crazy. This is Tony Katz today. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you.
hey there, everybody. I am Andrew Langer in for Tony Katz today. Love a little Sam and Dave. I mean, before we bring on our guest, all of you out there, when you hear Hold On, I'm Coming by Sam and Dave, what do you think about? Because I'll tell you what I think about. I immediately think about the Blues Brothers and the tape of the best of Sam and Dave in the Bluesmobile. That's what I think about. Uh, hey, listen, it got me got me turned on to Sam and Dave. Love it, love it, love it. Want to know what you think? Facebook.com slash Andrew Langer Show. Or at me on uh, at me on Twitter, at Andrew underscore Langer. Joining us right now is a gentleman. Uh, he was uh, being promoted to me at CPAC last week. We didn't get a chance to talk. His name is Barry Hinckley. He is the founder of an organization called Redeclaration.org. They're having a redeclaration of independence, or they had one on October 4th, 2023. Barry, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about the uh, the redeclaration. Uh, it's great to be with you, Andrew. Uh, the Redeclaration of Independence is uh, basically a candidate and representative accountability petition. We have gotten to the point, as we the people, and I think your listeners are on that page, certainly I listened to a, a few of them on the intro, and uh, that we are incredibly disappointed, frustrated to use uh, words that we can use on the airways about the, uh, the behavior and actions of our representatives, most of our representatives, in Washington, D.C. Uh, and, and we believe that only if we get 10% of the adult population, uh, legal adult population in America, to sign a pledge of accountability and demand our reps do the same thing and go to Washington to work on things like securing the border, term limits, balanced budget, those basic type tenants, and we have 10 of them in our redeclaration of independence, that we can then hold these representatives and these candidates accountable so their work. So when they come and ask for their job back in two years or six years, whatever cycle they're on, we can measure them against that progress or not. Uh, it's it's an interesting idea. Um, and you started this in October. I'm looking at the the ten tenets here. It starts with uh, honor and enforce the Constitution as written, uh, which is uh, abundantly important as it seems to get perverted uh, time and again. Um, and then it goes on. I will say. Nothing about the regulatory state, the administrative state, but I'm assuming that gets bound up in the uh, in in uh, our Article One of this uh, uh, enforcing the Constitution as written. Uh, your thoughts here? Well, there's a couple things. We could have gone on forever because Washington sure. D.C. is incredibly broken, right? This country, we've got we're, we're two nations in one country. One nation is Washington D.C. with its outposts in L.A. and San Francisco and Chicago and New York uh, and other corrupt, broken cities. And then the rest of us, right? And so we feel that we could have written 30 tenants, but we wanted sure. to keep it to 10, right, along the line of the commandments and the Bill of Rights also had 10. Uh, and, and we also feel if we can get people to enforce these 10 basic things that should, should be immutable and not even arguable, like a secure border, then they will do the right thing when it comes to dismantling the regulatory state. Because I grew up in a manufacturing family which was decimated and then exported by the regulatory state. So trust me, I want that as much as everyone. Well, let's let's talk a little bit more uh, about about the tenants that are there. One of them you talk about is the issue of American labor and the level playing field. Uh, certainly, something you you learned about being part of a manufacturing family. Uh, talk talk a little bit about that. Well, it ruined my my family's life and in the lives of many many hardworking Americans. I I was born in 1966, and I watched. Uh, you know, as China got opened up and uh, then, you know, more of Asia got opened up. And, uh, and then, of course, when Clinton, you know, did the coup de grace in 92, which gave giving China 
most favored nation status. And, you know, in the, all these countries in Asia and other parts of the world, many do not li- in South America do not live to the same expectations or, or, or um, uh, level of, uh, I guess, manufacturing prowess and environmental prowess, labor prowess that our politicians hold us to here in America. Yet they, our politicians have enabled these countries to dump their products here, devaluing American labor. I watched that happen. I watched American companies get uprooted. I watched American lives get ruined because we allowed products that were polluting the Pacific on the left side uh, be imported to America where we were held to a much higher standard. So we need to change that. And the bottom line is if you want to sell your stuff in America, you've got to live by the same rules we have to live by. It certainly needs to be a, a leveling of the playing field there. We've I've done a little bit of work on this as well. Uh, let's talk about how the effort came about. I mean, you, you know, your bio, your you're uh, you are a descendant of the commander of the Minutemen who engaged the British in, in Concord. Uh, you did this with a couple of your high school friends. Uh, how did this all come about? Well, it came about in September. It's an interesting story. I've been, uh, you know, a constitutional activist for 18 years. I got started with pre- the, the the Tea Party stuff in the, uh, the late, uh, you know, 2007, 2008 in Boston when things really started to turn in America politically. You know, they'd already turned from a regulatory point of view, as you pointed out. Sure. Uh, so I've always had a mind to this. You know, I was born on April 18th. My great-grandfather, Colonel James Barrett, uh, was the commander of the Minutemen. My name is Benjamin Barrett Hinckley. I'm named after his father. So it's always been part of our family and who we are, you know, the, the founders in, in, in this amazing constitutional republic that they created that allowed more Americans. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. ...to succeed, well, ask more people to succeed uh, than any other experiment in human history from all different walks of life and colors and creeds. That is part of me. That's part of uh, the kids I grew up with in high school. We believe that deeply. And this fall, I was at a speech uh, uh, that Tucker Carlson gave, now known as the famous Wilmington speech. It was September 28th. And, and I festered for six days after that, and I began writing. And uh, on, uh, on October 4th, I, I compiled the first version of the Redeclaration of Independence. And a few friends joined me, uh, one of whom is a federal employee that's very disappointed, and, uh, the kind of federal employee that we'd all lo- love to have. Uh, and we, we compiled this effort, and Tucker, in that speech, actually challenged the audience he said, if you get 10% of America to stand up and be brave, we can end this, quote, unquote, crap right now. And that's what we're doing. We took him literally. We wrote this, and we've put it out there, and we're trying to get 25 million Americans to sign this because we know our politicians won't do anything unless we lead them in big numbers. Well, right. And so in terms of this, have you started to talk to uh, some of the, the bigger names in, in these uh, limited government movements to get them to endorse this, to get it in the hands of, say, so listen, all it would take, all it would take is for, uh, for uh, Donald Trump to mention this in a speech, and he would be, uh, and, and you would get uh, a huge number of signatures out of that. Listen, it's, and I get it, I gotta, gotta step back and admire your ambition here. I mean, 10% of Americans, so that would be uh, 33 million Americans to sign this. If you could do that, no, that would be... On. Andrew, uh, stop me for a second. I said legal American. Legal American. Oh. Uh, <laughs> so okay. And if you, if you discount the children, you're, you're at about 250 million. So 25 million okay. illegal American adults of voting age. Okay, okay. So still, 
the difference between 25 and 33 million Americans. I mean, they, you know, it, it's it's uh, it's it's within the margin of error here. So so let's. Uh, but I mean, that would if you could get 25 million Americans. Uh, let me say this much: if you could get a million Americans to to sign this, it would be it would be astounding. And again, I've got to I've got to admire it. What are you doing to uh, to make folks more aware of this? Besides coming on, you know, shows like Tony, we you know we've got millions of listeners out there. You should all take a look at this and sign it. But uh, well, who, who are you reaching out to? We're, we're every day. I work on this, and we have a lot sure. of volunteers. My friends and I are funding the effort. Uh, you know, because we were lucky enough to be uh, you know moderately successful in this in this in the opportunity this country has provided us. And we're calling, we're emailing, we're getting on as many shows as possible, and we're asking your listeners to do one simple thing. Read it. These are 10 basic tenets. They are not. I mean, you, you're looking at them right now, Andrew. I mean, they're not difficult things to disagree with. Uh, balancing the budget, not too hard, right? You, I don't know, man. I, you know, I just, <laughs> I just mess with you. Go ahead. So then, you know, read it, sign it. It doesn't cost anything to sign it. Uh, and then forward it. And you can sign anonymously if, if you don't want to be uh, posted publicly on the website with thousands of others that have. And then forward it to 10 friends. If we do that, we should get some geometric progression pretty quickly. Because one thing I've learned, I ran for U.S. Senate in 2012. That's, That's right, under Sel- after, uh, against Sheldon Whitehouse. Yeah. Oh, boy, what a story. We can, go, we can do another <laughs> show on those stories. Sure. But, uh, but, you know, one thing I learned about career-type politicians, they, you know, Bill Clinton, I think, summed it up, and he's obviously not a man of high moral character, but a very savvy politician. You know, he made it to the top of the heap, so to speak, however he did it. But he did say politicians will never start the parade, but they will jump out in front with Absolutely. a baton if you do. And this is our attempt to start the parade. So I am calling. I would love it if uh, President Trump signed this and endorsed it. You know, we're, we're reaching out to as many people as possible. But, you know, my feeling is they're not really going to jump on board until we, the people, have really have really got this thing rolling and started the snowball. Sure thing. And the website, again, is redeclaration.org. That's R-E, declaration.org. Our guest uh, is Barry Hinckley, who is the, uh, one, of the, one of the co-founders of this effort and the, one of the uh, principal authors of the document itself. Uh, Barry, uh, you, and you guys are starting to support, or candidates are, I'm going to say you guys aren't the ones supporting the candidates. There are candidates that are supporting your, your efforts. You're also looking for that, aren't you, for candidates to go and sign the redeclaration. Well, that's the big part of it. So we want we the people to sign it, and we also want you to not only sign it yourselves and forward it to ten family and friends, but forward it to your the the rep you support or the candidate you support or both, and demand that they sign it. And this is the measuring stick that we are going to measure you against when we send you to Washington, because the most important thing is that we get them to pledge their allegiance to these ten tenants, and it's modeled after the pledge they take in New Hampshire, which. You guys may not know about out in the Midwest, but New Hampshire has this great pledge, which is probably, you know, as it gets more democratic in New England, is in jeopardy. But for 40 years, they've had what they call the pledge. And it's a social contract where you essentially cannot run for office in New Hampshire, Democrat or Republican, uh, if, if you do not take what they call the pledge, which in that pledge is you will not introduce a new tax. New Hampshire has no sales tax, no income tax. So it's modeled after that to a certain degree. Well, that's it's interesting, uh, Barry. I appreciate this. I'm looking at this. It's uh, number one is the balance, balance budget amendment. Uh, two is uh, to pass the annual balance budget by October one, or Congress goes without pay. Um, uh, there's uh, Americans American tax receipts spent on American Americans first. 
term limits, level playing field for American labor, securing our elections, securing our borders, honoring and enforcing the Constitution as written, uh, ensuring that uh, U.N. policy is not uh, forced on Americans, energy independence, uh, the declaration, I'm sorry, the Depart- ending the Department of Education and ending political indoctrination in our military. These are not outlandish demands to make. I think every every candidate running for office federally, uh, certainly on the Republican side, should be signing this, uh, Barry. Listen, how do folks find out more about your efforts? What are you guys up to? What, what you guys are up to? It's real simple. Go to redeclaration.org. Read it. It's right. You, you've read most of it right there. There's a little preamble. Uh, sign it, forward it to your friends, and then demand your candidate uh, or, or, or representative, uh, both Senate and Congress, sign it. Simple as that. Well, Barry Hinckley, we wish you the best of luck with this. I uh, look forward to seeing your progress as the months and years go by, sir. Thank you, Andrew. Great to be with you guys. Uh, take care. That was Barry Hinckley. He is the founder of redeclaration.org. They have a new declaration up there. He's the principal author. Go and, go and check that out. Uh, in a moment, we're going to continue. I, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, Kamala Harris is in the news today. I'm Andrew Langer. This is Tony Katz today.
Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Well, guys, let's always get to do this show. Ah. Anyway, as I'm putting fake voices on in my head, I'm Andrew Langer. I'm in for Tony Katz. I'll, I'll, I'll throw in a minute to uh, tell you about uh, how you can find out more about what I'm up to. You've been hearing about it all day. I, I want to leave you this because this is going to be a theme over the next uh, next couple of days. Um, I touched on this earlier. I said I was going to explain this, which is the issue of the whole of government approach to these ideological goals. Uh, and it gets into what we've talked about a little bit today with Tim Lee and a handful of others. We're going to talk more about this tomorrow and in the coming days uh, about about the, the Biden administration pulling out the stops. Uh, one of the things I was going to play, uh, in fact, you know something, I will play it. Uh, let's let's play a cut number 10 here. Uh, our, 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 our esteemed Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris, let's hear what she has to say. We are proudly talking about equity, even though these people on the, uh, you know, so-called leaders want to shut down DEI. They're trying to they're trying to do with DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, what they sadly successfully did with woke. Yeah, God forbid. God God forbid because it's all the same thing. DEI, but woke is an overall blanket term. DEI is the particularization of woke policies. And it's not just, you know, they they they're, they're engaging in this you know, all around the government, the whole of government approach means that they attack these issues, the implementation of these issues in all kinds of different agencies and settings. So whether it is the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, uh, trying to create DEI scorecards uh, for big media corporations, or whether it is the implementation of DEI uh, in terms of investment guidelines at the Securities and Exchange Commission, or the implementation of DEI at the Interior Department, or at, uh, uh, or at the Agricultural Department, or, or, or the Department of Education, or wherever. This is what they do and what they're going to do. As I said, they want prescription drug price controls, uh, and, and normally they would go through the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or more generally, the Department of Health and Human Services. Now they're using the National Institutes for Standards and Technology to go after and try to seize patents. 
Next week on Monday, we're going to be joined by John Schweppe from the American Principles Project, who's going to talk about they're going after Christian colleges. Well, they've done it more generally to colleges to go after religious freedom. They hate that. They've done it at HHS to go after uh, matters of conscience for doctors. They even use the Interior Department to try and remove the statue of William Penn. We talked about this on these airwaves before. A real affront to religious freedom. I'm, I'm going to tell you guys. And listen, I don't want to take I don't want to take credit for this term. I, I use it quite a bit. Uh, this term whole of government. It's a term that's coined by my colleague Wayne Cruz at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And they're doing this because there are about 3,000 separate rulemakings a year. And no one organization, no one entity can pay attention to all of them. And they know that if they can just get it through in one little area, in an area where maybe a handful of folks are going to only notice, well, then they can have a victory. They can call it a day. But by the way, I want to go back to this other issue of the Supreme Court and and Donald Trump. Right. Uh, 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 Jamie Raskin was talking about how they, they people shouldn't count on the Supreme Court. Well, we all know that as part of this ideological goal, if the Supreme Court rules for Donald Trump as they should, they're going to try to use it as a, use it as a way to further delegitimize Donald Trump as president of the United States or as a candidate tomorrow. Uh, Chad Caton, who's uh, with the Veterans for Trump, he's going to join us. Jenny Beth Martin from Tea Party Patriots. Tim Head from Faith and Freedom Coalition is going to join as well. Logan Church from Catholic Vote. Ken Davis, Matthew, Matthew Forsyth. Uh, all of those folks going to join us. If you want to find out more about what I'm up to, at Andrew underscore Langer on Twitter is how you find me. Facebook.com uh, slash Andrew Langer Show is how you message me. Have a great night, everybody. Please have fun and stay safe. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you.